Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. So much to talk about on this edition of the Richard Roper Show. Uh, more news about Taylor Swift. Is she a psyops? Is she a plant by the government? Some people actually seem to think so. How much time are the TV networks actually devoting to Taylor Swift during NFL games? We're going to break it down for you. Uh, there's a new movie that's being cast. It's about the initial year, the buildup, the Saturday Night Live, and they're casting actors as some of those iconic cast members of SNL. We're going to talk about that. And once again, it's Groundhog Day. We're going to pay tribute to Groundhog and talk about some other time loop movies that came out after Groundhog Day. And we got reviews. The final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is heading your way. I've seen uh, most of the final season. I'll have a review of that for you and some other new streaming stuff and movies. All of that and the proverbial much, much more. But first, here is your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes. They're offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. AmericanEagle.com. All right, let's get right into it. Taylor Swift conspiracy theories out of control. This is an actual article in one of the showbiz Bibles, Variety Magazine, doing some fine reporting on a very ridiculous subject. But the reporting is solid. They're talking about how some people and some conservative news organizations are so upset about Taylor Swift and, and Travis Kelsey. And it's amazing. It, it's been going on now for months because I think it was the Bears-Chiefs game way back in the fall. That was the first time that uh, we saw Taylor Swift in an NFL game, and then she spent most of the game since then. And some people, they just can't handle it. So here's the story in Variety Magazine. On the January 9th episode of his show, Jesse Waters, Primetime, the Fox News talking head played a clip from a 2019 conference organized by the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. That sounds like more entertaining than a U2 concert at the Sphere, doesn't it? During the presentation, Swift is named as a powerful influencer. And Waters then connected several dots from there. Around four years ago, the Pentagon Psychological Operations Unit floated, turning Taylor Swift into an asset, he claims. It's real. The Pentagon PSYOP unit pitched NATO on turning Taylor Swift into an asset for combating misinformation online. I mean, I like her music. She's all right. But I mean, have you ever wondered why or how she blew up like this? Well, around four years ago, the Pentagon Psychological Operations Unit floated turning Taylor Swift into an asset during a NATO meeting. What kind of asset? A PSYOP for combating online misinformation. Listen. You came in here wanting to understand how you just go out there and counter an information operation. Well, the idea is that social influence can help, uh, can help uh, encourage or uh, promote behavior change, so potentially as like a peaceful information operation. I include Taylor Swift in here because she's, um, you know, she's a fairly influential online person. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yeah, that's real. The Pentagon PSYOP unit pitched NATO on turning Taylor Swift into an asset for combating misinformation online. Wait a minute. You're telling me that the government, that the Pentagon, was pitching NATO on asking Taylor Swift to help them 
combat misinformation. Oh my gosh, that's so scandalous. So in other words, like maybe if somebody were, you know, out there, all these people that are trolling and fake newsing and AIing and all that stuff, and there was misinformation, she would be combating the misinformation by maybe sending out a tweet saying, here's the actual truth. Wow, that sounds very dangerous. I mean, it's, it's so it's so ridiculous, even if any of this really played out. And, you know, Taylor Swift isn't interested in becoming the gatekeeper of all truth on the Internet. But they're actually saying, can you believe that? They wanted to use her to combat misinformation, which we should all be doing. We should all be fighting misinformation. This continues. Perhaps one of the wackiest culture war attacks on Swift has come from Newsmax, where host Greg Kelly has slammed Swift from a biblical angle. That's right. I'm thumping an imaginary Bible right there. They're elevating her to an idol, this guy said. Idolatry. This is a little bit of what idolatry, I think, looks like, and you're not supposed to do that. In fact, if you look it up in the Bible, it's a sin. You know, idolatry, you know, worshiping your fellow human being is a false idol. Can you imagine if someone did that? Like, for example, if groups of people in almost cult-like fashion devoted themselves to slavishly worshiping a presidential candidate and they make paintings of him or they give him a bodybuilder's figure and they, they have him fighting wars, even though he did everything he could and succeeded in not even getting drafted. And they, they talk about how he's a man of the people and they believe everybody's out to get, I can't even imagine that a group of people would ever do that with a politician, but they're doing it with Taylor Swift. The fascinating thing to me is, and we've talked about this, you know, there's going to be huge mainstream interest when, Arguably the biggest pop star on the planet, certainly one of the uh, biggest pop stars of the last 20 years, dating a high-profile Hall of Fame, future Hall of Fame football player. You know, I mean, this goes all the way back, and it's even before that, but Joe DiMaggio, right after he retired from the Yankees, married Marilyn Monroe, who was the biggest star in the world at the time. And Joe DiMaggio was a legend, you know, and, that, and it remains a legend. And there was huge, huge interest in this. But I've done some research, and I can't find a lot of evidence of... um Eisenhower Republicans in the 50s uh, who were that worked up about that, even though Marilyn Monroe was very left. In fact, some would say she might even have been a communist and had communist sympathies. That's, that's, a, that's a whole thing that's been written about and talked about ad nauseum. But my point is whether it was, you know, Joe Namath always was uh, having these high-profile romances. Tom Brady and Giselle, they used to show uh, Giselle in the skybox all the time. We show celebrities at games. We have ever since celebrities have been attending games. But I, I think the root cause of this comes back to Travis Kelsey doing those. It's Pfizer ads doing, you know, those get, you can get your vaccination and your flu shot at the same time or whatever. So he's considered pro-science. And Taylor Swift, you know, has gone on record. She's in yeah, there's a famous documentary footage of her talking a couple of years ago, how she needs to use her voice. And she is getting people and urging young people to register to vote. And she's clearly on uh, the liberal side of things. So I guess that's what drives them. Not so much, but the, they kept people keep talking about how they're ruining football. Okay. And they're boycotting it. First of all, nobody ever boycotts anything, basically. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, the Cesar Chavez boycotts of the seventies, people were really doing that. And every once in a while, someone might uh, you know, stage a successful walkout or 
one day boycott. But you know, these, these folks who said they weren't going to drink Bud Light anymore and they weren't going to go to a football game. This goes back to you know when Colin Kaepernick and other players, including Travis Kelsey, were either you know taking a knee or uh, you know embracing you know locking arms during the national anthem. Just a little aside here: the Chiefs Ravens game last week set an all-time ratings record. Sunday's Chiefs Ravens AFC Championship game averaged 25.5 rating, which in this day and age, when you have so many options, 25.5 rating is crazy huge. 55.47 million viewers on CBS, 55.47 million viewers. I think they peaked over 60 million. It's the largest audience on record for the AFC title game. The previous high was 54.85 million for Jets Steelers in 2011. And you want to talk about misinformation yes no it's actually true the jets were in a championship game not that long ago 13 years ago excluding the super bowl it was the most watched cbs television program of any type since the nancy kerrigan and tanya harding fueled 1994 lillehammer winter olympics 1994 uh, for folks who don't remember all that and you know they're i tanya margot robbie uh, it's a great film from about five years ago, but there was this huge scandal where somebody attacked Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding's people were accused of it. So there was this all this crazy interest, tabloid ask. In fact, the, the early 1990s really brought about the era of uh, scandal and tabloid uh, television. And, you know, the, the OJ trial, of course, Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, there were a bunch of other high profile incidents. It was really when that, all of that started. So the ratings are huge. And now we're going to get to the New York Times article that just came out that looked at how much Taylor Swift is actually on TV in these games. So the New York Times, again, if you told people from the New York Times or even Variety, you know, six months ago, they'd be on the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey beat. They'd be like, the what now? So the New York Times, though, this is actually really fascinating. Uh, the most recent game, the one we mentioned, the Chiefs-Ravens game, what they did is they broke down Travis's day and uh, <laughs> Taylor's screen time. Travis had a big day. Travis Kelsey uh, in the championship game, 11 catches, 116 yards, and a touchdown. And when he has better games, it stands to reason that they'd probably show Taylor reaction shots a lot more. Uh, Taylor Swift was on TV a total of 32 seconds uh, during the game. We did see her on the field, along with a lot of other loved ones, girlfriends, wives, children, parents, or whatever, of the, the victorious team, as we always do. 32 seconds. January 21st, Taylor Swift was on TV for 24 seconds. January 13th, oh, she got a minute and 16 seconds. I think they, they mentioned, too, though, part of that was because they were talking about the Grammys coming up and the fact that Taylor Swift will be at the Grammys. Uh, one of those games for sure they did that. chiefs Bengals, where uh, Travis was almost invisible. He had three catches for only 16 yards. They showed her only three times for a total of 12 seconds. And then Chiefs-Raiders on Christmas Day, only 14 seconds on Christmas Day, time shown. So those five weeks... I'm not going to pull out my calculator. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. I'm just doing the carry the one, add this, plus that 60 seconds in a minute. Minute. It's not even three minutes. In the last five Chiefs games, Taylor Swift has had not even three minutes of screen time. So Jake from State Farm and Flo from Progressive and the Wendy's crew and uh, all the all the other folks you see on the commercials Way more screen time than Taylor Swift. So three minutes of screen time has gotten some some people just worked up into this frenzy where they think she's a psyops. Good luck to all those folks. All right, casting the Saturday Night Line movie, the Saturday Night Live movie, not the Saturday Night Line movie. I don't know what that would be, but 
they did have a lot of lines on Saturday Night Live. Okay, so they're doing a movie about SNL. I guess the idea here is to show all the, the behind the scenes, the tumultuous, controversial, maybe even cocaine-fueled, uh, contentious, uh, crazy atmosphere backstage leading up and uh, up to the actual premiere uh, of Saturday Night Live in uh, 75. Now, you know, you go back, uh, it was considered a, a bold experiment at the time. They used to run uh, reruns of Johnny Carson's show. They had to get his permission, actually, his blessing to uh, to let them use that time slot. There had been some other live variety programs, but they really didn't know what they were getting with SNL. If you watch the old clips, I mean, there's legendary iconic performers on there, but it's it's a very uneven show with some strange hosts sometime. Uh, very different from what it is now, but fascinating stuff. So I like the idea of them doing a movie. I also like the idea that most of these young actors who are going to be playing pivotal players, the not ready for prime time players, as they were known, I guess they might still be known as that, are not well known, which I think is a good idea. You don't want to get well-known young actors playing these icons because I think they're comparisons would be too easy so uh they've all done stuff but not a lot gabrielle labelle is going to play lauren michaels he was uh the young uh steven spielberg doppelganger in the fablemans Corey michael smith is going to play chevy chase he was the riddler on gotham for five seasons oh boy man uh, just knowing the stories we know i don't know if chevy's going to be thrilled that they're going to do this movie matt wood is going to play the late john belushi probably the most daunting uh task of all He's done stage work and TV work, uh, but Matt Wood will be playing John Belushi. The English actress Ella Hunt will be the late Gilda Radner. Dylan O'Brien will play Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Lamorne Morris is going to play Garrett Morris. No relation. He was in season five of uh, Fargo and also Winston on New Girl. And Emily Farron will play Lorraine Newman. Again, she's done some stage, some TV stuff. We have to keep an open mind and hope this is is done well. I think it's it's tough because, as we talked about, we're we're talking about young unknown actors, but the performers and even Lauren Michaels that they're playing have gone on to become legends. So it's a you know heavy shadow. Whether it's you know we've lost Gilda and of course John Belushi a long time ago. Some of them are still around. It's going to be interesting to see the reaction to that. You know they tried a John Belushi biopic back in '89. It was called Wired. It's based on a book, I believe, by Bob Woodward of uh, Woodward and uh, Bernstein fame, right? So, um, and Michael Chiklis, who went on to do a lot of great stuff, uh, played John Belushi, but it was, it, it, don't even sample it out of curiosity. It's, it's unbelievably bad. It just, it didn't work. It was just, and it was, I think, about six, seven years after John Belushi had died. So it wasn't like they did it right afterward, but, you know, the memories were still there. They still are. And it was neither funny, no, nor did it work as a serious pick. It has a 4% uh, grade on Rotten Tomatoes. That gives you an idea. If, if you really want to get into the history of Saturday Night Live and uh, mostly the year, earlier years, Tom Shales and James Andrew Miller's book, it's an oral history where they got all kinds of cast members and the writers and behind the scenes people and even guest hosts. It's called Live from New York, the complete uncensored history of Saturday Night Live as told by its stars, writers, and guests. I, I highly recommend that book. Okay, before we take a break, too, I want to talk about uh, Groundhog Day. We're right around Groundhog Day again. Uh, if you go to suntimes.com, suntimes, all one word.com, or just type in, just Google Richard Roper Suntimes, and you, you'll, you'll be taken immediately to all the articles and reviews and things I write for my home newspaper, the Chicago Sun-Times. I just did a piece where I talked to several of the supporting cast members of Groundhog Day who are coming to Chicago 
for uh, a tribute to Harold Ramis, who passed away. It's 10 years ago, believe it or not. Really enjoyed talking to the cast members. And I thought we'd also talk a little bit, you know, Groundhog Day wasn't the first work of fiction to do that living the same day all over again. There was a, I know there was a, um, a Christmas book, like the early part of the 20th century about, I think a young girl who was living Christmas over and over again. And then, uh, there was a short story called 1201 PM, uh, which became, I think, a, a, a film around 1990, a man forced to relive the same hour over and over again, a much more serious film, but Groundhog Day has set the has set the bar. And really, you know, before that, Groundhog Day was a, a quick, just like it was in the movie, it was a quick 25-second feature on the local news. They'd show Punxsutawney, or maybe you were doing it in your own local town. Someone would hold up the groundhog, six more weeks of winter or early summer, whatever the case may be. And that was about it. It's not like there was a whole spate of Groundhog Day movies. But now... That's actually become a term, right? A term in the culture, especially during COVID. A lot of people kept referencing Groundhog Day because it felt like we were all Phil Connors, that we were all living the Groundhog Day experience the same day over and over again. Uh, and it's got it's still it's still one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, but in the years after that, and I'm not saying all of these were developed because of Groundhog Day, but we did get a lot of, you know, repeat your life or repeat certain cycles. There was run Lola run in 1998 where the title character was on this 20 minute run several times, each time a little bit different. Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore in 51st dates. And that was actually, that, that is a, that's a sweet film and very funny 20 years ago for that, believe it or not. If you'll recall that one, Drew Barrymore is the one who thinks she's living the same day over and over again because she has a short term memory condition. It's not actually the same day. But Adam Sandler has to, you know, win her love every time. Source Code 2011, 2011. I recently rewatched this. I love this film. It's a little batshit crazy. There are certain moments, as there are in all of these movies, where you're like, well, how does that happen? But that's the one where Jake Gyllenhaal wakes up on uh, a train outside of Chicago right before a terrorist attack, and he has to stop the terrorists from blowing up the train, and then he keeps waking up and doing it again. And then we find out that, you know, it's sort of a virtual reality thing. Really, I love the ending of this film, too, because it's actually very hopeful. Source Code. Uh, then we had Edge of Tomorrow. That was the Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt film, where he kept repeating. That's a really strong film as well. The original title of that was, was Live, Die, Repeat, because he kept dying over and over again. Uh, we had the Happy Death Day movies, which were kind of fun B-horror movies, where the young woman, she gets to relive a murder at the hands of a killer until she could figure out a way to survive. And then we just had uh, Palm Springs a couple of years ago, which I really liked. Um, that's the one with Andy Samberg and Kristen Amiliati. And it's a wedding and Andy Samberg's caught in this time loop. And then uh, Kristen gets caught in it as well. And it's actually very smart and interesting and kind of a fresh take on that. Uh, so there you have it. Some other uh, Groundhog Day-esque movies out there. We've got some new stuff coming out. We're going to take a quick break here and talk about Portillo's, and then we'll have some reviews for you. All right, kids, let's talk about Portillo's. It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet Earth. My delivery history will bear this out. I also happen to live within walking distance of one of the Chicago Portillo's. Yes, that's right. I'm that lucky. It is amazing. You could order from the restaurant or the drive-thru, but if it's not near you, you can go to Portillo's.com, Portillo's.com and order. They got French fries. 
They got all kinds of comfort food. The amazing hot dogs, the Italian beef, the Italian sausage, some really good salads, by the way, if you want to take it a little bit easy because you want to have a little bit room left for the chocolate cake, the best chocolate cake in the world. Think about it. Portillos.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. That's how you spell it. Portillos.com. Phenomenal, sweetie, but what happens next? It's called a cliffhanger, mother. Ellie, it's called a cop out. Whoa, hey, there's a cat in there. Oh my god, you're Ellie freaking Conway. Author of Argyle series, Ellie Conway. I am such a fan. Oh, yeah, what is it you do? Espionage. Would you sign my book? <laughs> Here we go. Who are these people? Real life spies. Why would they care about me? Because you're a goddamn fortune teller, Ellie. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. There's a little sound uh, slice from Argyle, feature film uh, hitting theaters. This is from Matthew Vaughn, the director who's done movies like the Kingsman franchise. He did Kick-Ass, so he's very famous and has been very successful doing these uh, kind of aggressively creative action movies with highly stylized action sequences and dashing actors beating the hell out of each other and shooting each other up. And that's what happens in Argyle. I thought it was quite terrible. I'm just going to start off by telling you guys this. It comes in, it clocks in at a very bloated and self-indulgent two hours and 19 minutes. It's got VFX and CGI sequences so cheesy. You almost think, are they deliberately going for like a 1980s look, but it's set in present day. And even the location shots, I know they did some location scenery, but everything in this movie looks like it was shot in front of a green screen. And uh, the premise is kind of interesting. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard plays Ellie Conway. She's the author of a best-selling seri- uh, series of espionage novels about a dashing secret agent named Argyle. And Argyle is played by Henry Cavill. But then the stuff that's happening in her book starts happening in real life, and we can't figure out, is she predicting the future? Is she hallucinating? Uh, Sam Rockwell shows up as basically the real-life Argyle. There's Brian Cranston over there. Catherine O'Hara over here, Dua Lipa shows up, John Cena's in there, and we kind of keep going back and forth between the imaginary world of Argyle and the real spy stuff. It just gets more and more convoluted, ridiculous, and worst of all, you stop caring about who the real Argyle is. By the time Samuel L. Jackson shows up, and you're always excited to see him, you can just tell that he's like counting the zeros on his paycheck waiting for this thing to end. Argyle one of the worst movies of the very young year so far. Completely different source material and completely different level of quality. Let's talk about Feud. We made New York the capital of the world, the center of everything. And who is at the center of that center? Truman. Truman. Truman Capote is our great protector and our best friend. We tell him everything. Even the awful things we've all done to each other. You earn the face you deserve. Yes, I think so. Oh, my. 
this portrait of us, it's everywhere. He's telling everyone about our secret life. You miserable little. To be vilified and banished? He's finished. <laughs> You told more lies. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Capote versus the Swans on FX Hulu. Uh, this is uh, Ryan Murphy's uh, series about uh, the author Truman Capote. Now, remember, Philip Seymour Hoffman won the Oscar for Capote. And then Toby Jones did brilliant work as Truman Capote. A year later in a movie called Infamous, for those who don't know, and I'm sure most of you do, Truman Capote was a very famous and influential writer of the 20th century who wrote Breakfast and Tiffany's, which of course was turned into a movie, which was very different than the book, by the way, if you, if you go back and look at it. And then In Cold Blood, which kind of was the advent and not the invention, but certainly the popularization of what Capote called the nonfiction novel, where he told the story of a real life horrific murder but told it in a way that read like a novel. Uh, and it became a, a sensation, a huge bestseller. A lot of people talking about one of the most influential books of the middle of the 20th century. And then Truman Capote himself became super famous. You can look him up and see him on all these talk shows because he was this flamboyant, witty, uh, sardonic character. Also, unfortunately, drank and smoked and did a lot of drugs and, and died way too young. But the series on FX Hulu, the swans are the... Uh, the socialites in New York at the time who became great friends with Capote until he betrayed them in a Esquire article where it was thinly disguised, disguised fiction again, non nonfiction novel. Just in case it was a nonfiction short story. Uh, and the cast is amazing. They got iconic actresses to play these iconic women. Naomi Watts plays uh, Barbara Bay Paley, who was Capote's favorite swan. Uh, Diane Lane is Slim Keith, Callista Flockhart. Uh, Demi Moore is in this, Molly Ringwald, uh, incredible cast. And also I want to mention that, so Babe Paley, who's played by Naomi Watts, she was married to William S. Paley, who was the head of CBS at a time in the, we're talking about the seventies mainly, uh, you know, when you just had the three networks really. So the head of CBS was one of the most powerful people in the world. And the late Treat Williams plays William S. Paley in this series. It's very bittersweet whenever we see an actor that we loved who's now gone, but we get to see and be reminded of how great they are. So it's called Feud, Capote versus the Swans, very stylized, beautifully photographed, kind of gets meandering here and there. It's maybe a little bit too long, but beautiful to look at. And Tom Hollander playing uh, Truman Capote, you know, it's a daunting task after Philip Seymour Hoffman and Toby Jones have done these great acting jobs as Capote. This is a little different because those two films were more about the young Capote and the writing of In Cold Blood and the relationship he had with the convicted killer. And it was kind of, you know, Capote becoming this huge force. This is post In Cold Blood and post uh, success. And now Capote is more interested in befriending these women and becoming famous and hold, you know, hosting the famous black and white ball and all of that. And the writing kind of falls by the wayside. So it's a little more of a tragic portrayal, uh, but brilliantly done. Also want to mention on Netflix, The Greatest Night in Pop. This is a terrific documentary. It's just a one shot. It's not a series. Uh, it's all about the night in 1985 when something like 46 of the world's biggest entertainers got together 
to record We Are the World, which went on to become one of the best-selling singles, sold 20 million copies. More, more important, it raised $60 million in $1985 to combat uh, starvation in Africa, specifically Ethiopia. The greatest artists of a generation came together to save some lives. Must be in a dream, huh? Hello, hello. But we only had one night to get this right. Let's get this party started. I received this call from Herbalafante, and he wants to do some kind of a song for famine relief in Africa. Basically, what he said was, I need you. We just thought we'd pull together as many artists as we could and figure it out. We'll start chopping wood. If we stop for a minute, this thing's going to be chaos. Again, for me, I don't want to open a can of worms. From that moment on, I was nervous out of my brain. People didn't know what we were going to be doing. There's really no excuse. There's a full-on fight going on. What am I supposed to sing? The clock is ticking, and we had so many disasters coming. Man, are you kidding? <laughs> Uh, it was right after, remember, first there was Julie Notes Christmas, which was the Bob Geldof creation. So then Quincy Jones and some other folks decided, you know, we got to do something ourselves, Harry Belafonte. And um, this is a terrific documentary because they had a bunch of cameras rolling the whole time because they were going to shoot a video. But they also had a journalist on hand who was recording audio the whole time. So we get to see the reason they were able to get everybody together was because the American Music Awards were that night in Hollywood. So then they kind of wrangled everybody over to the studios to record this stevie wonder cindy lauper huey lewis Smokey robinson bruce springsteen waylon jennings diana ross it was an insane collection of talent and as you'd expect you know there there were some clashes and some setbacks and then some funny moments and some touching moments so it's called the greatest night in pop it's all about the recording of rear of the world it's terrific and we will end on another upbeat note believe it or not Curb Your Enthusiasm is finally taking a curtain call. Larry David says, this is it. Now, he did say that about seven seasons ago, but now he's like, listen, I'm done. This is, so this would be season 12. Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think his first episode was 24 years ago. So it's it's kind of every other year. There's actually at one time, I think there was a gap of about six years where it looked like it wasn't coming back. But then Larry gets an idea, a notion maybe a list of gripes and he comes back and uh, excited to report to you guys that it, the season 12 lives up to the greatness of all the previous seasons. There's 10 episodes in season 12. They gave me a look at nine of them. They didn't want me to see the series finale. They do that sometimes just to even make sure it doesn't get lost when they send me links that somebody doesn't grab it, which I'm fine with. I completely get that. Whether I'm right or Antibiotics. Yeah, antibiotics. And that gives men breasts. Well, Larry could grow breasts. I thought of Larry with breasts. Well, he would, you know, you get pretty pretty cute. It's, it's not good for you. Pretty, pretty, pretty cute. I gotta be me. That's what happens when people have sex. They say, I love you. You're very special. People talk like that? Yeah. Men do that? You're small, you're petty, you're jealous. You're a walking fucking virus, Larry. I'm gonna be honest, I'm disappointed. I was expecting more from a childhood hero. I really did the best under the circumstances of a person who hates people and yet had to be amongst them. I gotta be me. It's picking up with Larry and he's still hanging out with the same folks, you know, 
Jeff and Susie and Cheryl and Ted Danson. And of course the great Leon black played by JB smooth. And I'm not going to give anything away other than to say, as you know, through the, throughout the history of this show, they've had these amazing guest stars. Sometimes there's actors who play characters. In other words, like Vince Vaughn, who's back this year plays, uh, Freddie Funkhauser, right? Mackay Pfeiffer played a detective, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They play actual characters. A lot of other times celebrities play themselves. Ted Danson again, Ray Steenburgen, and uh, David Schwimmer, Lynn Manuel Miranda was hilarious playing kind of a, a terrible version of himself. A lot of times they do play worse versions of themselves. The whole cast of Seinfeld came back. Uh, they're doing that again this year where uh, some really big names are portraying themselves in ways. I, would, I, I won't give this away, but I'll just say there's one particular guest turn where an actor playing themselves is such a good sport because their whole story arc for this particular guest star plays off a scandal that they were involved in. And in this parallel universe, they would be guilty of the scandal because of their behavior in this particular curb. So great stuff, Larry David. I think, you know, everybody talks about the improv and stuff. First of all, it, you know, there's, there are outlines, there are, there is writing involved, but yeah, they do some riffing, but I think one of the things that gets lost when we talk about curb your enthusiasm is how good the acting is. Starting with Larry David, he's not just playing himself. He's not that guy. He's a version of that guy. But we've had a lot of actors playing themselves. But, you know, when John Hamm was on there as John Hamm, what he's doing there, that's not easy to do. And as we mentioned, the guest stars, but, you know, the acting, the back and forth, you really got to come to play if you're going to be, you know, sharing the screen with Larry David, with J.B. Smoove, with Ted Danson, with Jeff Garland, all these guys, and of course, all the guest stars. So great stuff. Curb Your Enthusiasm, season 12, coming your way soon. On that note, we are going to bid farewell. Thanks to everybody who's been listening, who's been sticking with us, and we will be back very soon. Take care, everyone.